dive into the heart of the Syrian civil war on insurgency unmasked by the modern insurgent. Explore the historical legacy, geopolitical complexities and human impact of the Syrian civil war. From expert insights to gripping narratives, this podcast offers an in-depth understanding of the conflict. Come and journey through the Syrian civil war with the modern insurgent. Welcome to another episode of Insurgency Unmasked. Today, we are joined by Mamet Sengiz. And Mamet is a research associate professor with the Terrorism and Transnational Crime and Corruption Centre. He's got international field experience delivering capacity building and training assistance to international partners all over the world. He's been involved in research projects for the Brookings Institute, the EU and various US agencies. He's also published books, articles and op-eds on Syrian conflict, terrorism, transnational crime and corruption issues in the Middle East. Specifically, his 2019 book, The Illicit Economy in Turkey, How Criminals, Terrorists and the Syrian Conflict Fuel Underground Economies, is a very interesting read. I've not managed to read the whole thing, but I've tried to find any uh, online passages and read as much as I can in preparation for this. And it's fascinating work alongside any of the articles of his you can find online, I truly recommend reading into Mammoth's professional work. Today, we are going to be speaking about uh, Islamism, Islamism in Syria, and the groups that have kind of come out of this movement. So the first question I've got, actually, is how did you start researching this? How did you get into this field? Uh, first of all, uh, thanks for inviting me. And uh, my area of research is terrorism, transnational crime, and corruption. And currently, I'm working at George Mason University's Track Center, which stands for Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and the Corruption Center. I'm, I'm uh, from Turkey, and I was working for Turkish government long years. So during my tenure at Turkish government, I had a chance to observe and then to do research on Syrian conflict, also how it is impacting Turkey because uh, there happened some ongoing trafficking and smuggling issues and the transfers of these jihadists to the Syria. So it got my attention. Then I began to uh, focus on, on this issue in the, in the region. And then uh, after that, I began to uh, research on various issues in Syria. I think very recently, just two weeks ago, I published an, another op-ed on captagon trade in Syria. Because today Syria is getting more attention in terms of it is not only being a terrorist uh, safe haven, also being a criminal hub and also drug maybe uh, production center. So that's why I think all these developments maybe just got my attention. Then I decided to focus on to understand better and what's going on in Syria. Hmm. Fascinating. So I guess a good starting point uh, for understanding this whole episode is what is Islamism? If, to someone that doesn't really understand the whole Syrian civil war, how would you explain what Islamism is? I think also it, it's better to understand what Islamism meant, how it is connected to related to jihadism, you know. Hmm. Uh, I think in the, in the Islamic world, ongoing political and economic issues in Muslim countries have pushed these uh, Muslims to seek for solutions in the context of religion. And they aim to profile Islam and eliminate Western influence on social and political realms in the uh, early years. After that, two groups emerged. Then the first one is Islamists, who believe the power of political representation and then uh, taking active role when ruling the country. 
The second group, I think it is the militant Islamists who believe the power of violence and who believe that they are at war against the Western countries. Both Islamists and the militant Islamists relied on their uh, interpretation of Islamic rules. Islamists, for example, exploited religion to justify their corruption in government efforts because they are more representing the political Islamist Islamism and also they are more the political Islamist parties. However, militant Islamists they exploited uh, the interpretation of jihadism. Uh, jihadism actually jihad original means to, to struggle or exert effort, like improving yourself or uh, struggling in the path of God or teaching Islam or providing some financial support for an Islamic project. Originally, jihad means in Islam to struggle or fulfill your obligations to God, but moral and spiritual on a daily basis. When it comes to how Islamists and the militant Islamists interpret uh, jihadism, I think for Islamists, jihad means to expand every effort fighting against the disbelievers. It's also a communal obligation. But for, for militant Islamists, I can tell you that they generally set rules and limits for engaging in fighting in the uh, in the name of God. It's always surprised me how, even though they're both Islamists, how radical the difference is between these two groups. I think also these these groups they are uh, militant Islamists. They are they are the radical ones because they are mostly uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS. And uh, but 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 for political Islamists, maybe recently we have seen that when there is a repression and oppression over maybe some groups uh, in Islamic countries. So if there is no political representation for some uh, some some Muslim groups, so they can be again joining this uh, militant Islamist groups. So I can tell you that there's like some relations, uh, which is connected to some oppressions and repressions. So whenever there happens some political maybe oppressions, so we have seen a transition from political Islamism to militant Islamism. Mm. So. When these groups, say like ISIS and uh, Al-Nusra, end up becoming the groups that they are militant extremists, how has that transition influenced the dynamics and trajectory of the Syrian civil war? Actually, uh, maybe after Al-Qaeda and ISIS began to appear in Syria, for example, we have seen that maybe the evolution of counterterrorism approach from uh, overthrowing Assad regime to giving a priority to prevent ISIS and Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda's using uh, Syria as uh, safe safe haven, because in the early years the priority was just to overthrow uh, Bashar al-Assad. Then uh, the Western world, Gulf states as well as Turkey were giving their support and then providing some logistics and trainings for the moderate Syrian op op opposition. So they were, I think. Uh, under the banner of Free Syrian Army, FSA, in the early years. But after Al-Qaeda and ISIS began to appear in Syria, so the priority has changed. After that, we have seen that now it is a priority just to fight against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So maybe first of all, I can tell you that this is like, a, the first one is the evolution from overthrowing Assad and then giving priority to, to prevent ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The second one, I think, should be about uh, transition from moderate groups to jihadist groups. In the early years, FSA, more moderate groups, but after Al-Qaeda and ISIS began to appear, then began to be more powerful and uh, popular in Syria, 
then some FSA members left the organization and then joined ISIS or Al-Qaeda. So I can tell you that the second trajectory should be about how this transition happened from moderate opposition to joining to this jihadist groups. I think also the, another one, maybe ISIS's role in Syria, because ISIS acted like the Khalif of Islam. So they showed the organization like representing the whole, the Muslim community in the world. That's why maybe ISIS's new role attracted some other Muslims. So that's why we saw uh, some jihadist uh, militants joining ISIS from more than 90 countries. I think also that the last one should be about how ISIS and al-Nusra impacted you know, the trajectory of the war in, in Syria. Uh, of, uh, so I think currently we know that uh, Russia and you know uh, Iran, they also uh, they are active, involved in the conflict in Syria. But after ISIS and Al-Qaeda began to appear, both, both countries justified their presence, justified against ISIS and Al-Qaeda, but which in fact their priority, I think, I think were more like uh, pursuing their own interests in the in the country. Hmm. I think it's almost infamous at this point the kind of international coalition that came kind of came together to defeat ISIS. Do you think they actually achieved that goal? I can I can tell you that uh, ISIS uh, subsided in Syria and Iraq, so I can tell you that my Western power. Uh, they were influential. Also, they were able to defeat ISIS in, in Syria and Iraq. Actually, it is impossible for any organization you know, to fight against the Western military. But but then I think we should give our focus on the, some un, unintended consequences because I, when ISIS began to lose power in, in Syria and Iraq, then some ISIS militants left the country. So ISIS had a chance to expand its influence over, uh, over Syria. So that's why today we know that ISIS has like some representation and some presence in in Asia, in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, especially in uh, I think in, in Africa as well. So I think today uh, many African countries are experiencing uh, some kind of ISIS's regional branches and then the franchises. So uh, ISIS, yes, it is defeated, but even though it is defeated, it is a defeated organization. Today, I can tell you that in some provinces in Syria, like in Tyrazor, ISIS like has some representation. So ISIS is still active and is involved in some low-profile attacks in Syria. I think according to the terrorism databases, almost every year, uh, around five or 600 cases have been recorded uh, by ISIS militants in Iraq and Syria. But they are mostly low-profile attacks. I can tell you that yes, Western military, they were successfully uh, defeating ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But on the other hand, uh, when, when we look at its consequences, now today's ISIS is more, I mean, active and also is operating more globally than it was in its early years in Iraq and Syria. Mm. So, so yeah, it's interesting you say like the kind of difference between say five, 10 years ago and now, because the group ISIS I've written about on um, the modern insurgent I've written about some of the groups that, that were in the Caucasus some of our writers have also done all the groups across the Sahel Mozambique uh, the Philippines like it really has offshooted but in its pr prime said as degeneratively as you can say prime in ISIS's prime they had almost unprecedented 
in the contemporary world, the growth that they had. How did they get there? How did they manage to build such a big caliphate? Where, yeah. where did the money come from? I know that's a big part of the work you've done. How did they get to this point? First of all, we need to understand the regional dynamics, you know, for every region. Because as you said, in the Philippines, without an exception, all jihadist groups, they were, they were, I think they just, you know, pledged allegiance and declared loyalty to ISIS's yeah. leadership. So when it comes to Afghanistan again, some jihadists, some Muslims again, they were against the Taliban, but there happened uh, some vacuums. Then ISIS again uh, was addressing uh, the political grievances and economic and political grievances of some Muslims in, in, in the country. Then ISIS, I think, immediately appeared in, in Afghanistan, also uh, now has its own today's ISIS-K organization. I think also in terms of regional dynamics, we need to look at, again, the transition of the local jihadist groups and then on their journey to being like an uh, ISIS uh, franchise. Uh, for example, in, in, in Uzbekistan, UML, this organization pledged allegiance and then began to operate in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. When we look at, for example, Mozambique again, there were another local jihadist group, uh, which was Ansar al-Sunnah. Actually, these organizations, they were knowing well that when they are using the name of ISIS, so when they are under the banner of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, so they will be more popular. So the more they are popular, the more they can get funded. Also, the more they can get more and more recruits. So when it comes to your question, their financial resources, also terrorist financing. I think in today's world, uh, it is so common to see some states sponsoring terrorism, also behind these jihadist organizations. For example, you can see uh, Iran always uh, to give its support and then providing logistics to every jihadist organizations who are fighting against the US or the Western world. Also, it, it is so common, for example, in uh, in Syria. So maybe just to overthrow Bashar al-Assad regime, regardless of these organizations, these jihadist groups, rebel groups, they can qualify as jihadist terrorist organizations, but then some Gulf states, they just turn, they turn a blind eye and then let their businessmen transfer some money to these jihadist organizations. But states are not the only source for uh, when it comes to uh, financial resources of these organizations. Also, uh, we know well that from ISIS case in 2014 and 2015, because the organization was one of the wealthiest organizations with like $2 billion revenue uh, in 2014 and 2015. In addition to states, in addition to taxation extortion, also we were knowing well that ISIS was involved in oil smuggling, antiquity smuggling, as well as human smuggling, and also as well as taxing some local traffickers and smugglers. So they were all you know, bringing some, some money to these organizations. So I can tell you that mostly we should look at the states and then they're turning a blind eye. There's money transfers from these Islamic countries to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, as well as we need to look at their capacity, you know, how they are involved in smuggling and the trafficking issues. I think in this context, the second question should be, I think, about how these organizations procuring arms and explosives. So this is so common again to see how these organizations are using more technological weapons than some local military or the police in many countries where this ISIS and Al-Qaeda 
franchises are, are operating. Again, uh, I would blame in the first hand some states, you know, providing some weapons, I think through their intelligence units. So, but of course, on the other hand, we should look at uh, how these organizations collaborate with criminal organizations to transfer again some arms and explosives for the organizations. It's really interesting how kind of far the web spreads really is extensive. So you mentioned um, Iran there. One question I'd like to ask, the links between uh, Turkey and the political branches of the Islamist groups or the uh, the FSA, uh, that's well recorded. Has there been any links between Turkey and the militant groups as well? Yeah, actually, uh, today's Syria, it is much more complex you know, to understand, to figure out what's going on, who is fighting for what, who is taking them, who is taking whose side in, in the country. Because uh, U.S. is supporting uh, SDF, the Kurdish groups, because U.S. sees Kurdish groups as the only reliable ally to fight against ISIS and Al-Qaeda because it is only priority for the U.S. government to fight against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So when it comes to, again, Iran in, in Syria, because we know well that also Iran is giving its support from the beginning of the civil war, because there is an ongoing like, Cold War politics in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and also uh, the Iran. So both states, there are some rivalries, confrontations, but they're just competing to be the regional hegemon in, in the Middle East. That's why in Yemen, you can see how Saudis are giving their support, you know, those are involved in the conflict in Yemen, as well as how Iranian government is giving its support to Houthis in Yemen. So in Syria, Bashar al-Assad is a friendly, uh, has friendly politics for Iran. Actually, also historically, Father Assad was the only Arab leader in 1980s giving its support to, you know, to Iran uh, during the war against Iraq in 1980s. So Iran is again is pursuing its own interests. So that's why we saw a very strong presence of Iran in, in Syria, uh, transferring some Shia militias from Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan, then giving some training to them uh, by IRGC, and then forming these organizations under some specific organizations like Lashkar-i Fatimiyun or Lashkar-i Zainabiyun groups, as well as Hezbollah in, in, uh, in Syria. So when it comes to Turkey again, Turkey is justifying its presence and its active involvement in Syria just to prevent any possible establishment of a Kurdish state in northern Syria. So that's why Turkey is actively involved, but again, so many questions. And then Turkey is seemingly giving its support to these muddled organizations in northern Syria. But we know well that also there are some evidence showing us that these militants, they are some of them are uh, either the former FSA members, but some of them are, you know, the uh, the members of some ISIS and Al-Qaeda group. So, but Turkey is just, again, giving its priority to, to prevent the establishment of any Kurdish state. But again, the same problem, which we have seen from the beginning of the Syrian war, this is for Gulf states, Turkey and the EU or, or US. So in some cases, regardless of these rebel groups or their politics, you know, can be supportive to terrorism. But uh, because their interest is just to give, I think, priority to overthrow Assad, Bashar al-Assad regime. So in some cases, like Turkey case or Iranian case, they are just, again, giving their support to these rebel groups. But for Turkey, very briefly, I can tell you that 
these rebel groups, they are former FSM members. I think also I think some of them also are the former Al Qaeda and ISIS members. Hmm. Very interesting, actually. And then uh, we touched on it slightly earlier. Um, we mentioned that uh, people from over ninety different countries had come to join ISIS. I, I want to do a bit of a deeper dive into foreign fighters for the Islamist groups in Syria. How how big of a role have they played? And obviously, they've come from ninety different countries. Where where are seen the biggest numbers coming from? In 2014 and 2015, according to some, some database and some reports, there were more than 30,000 ISIS militants. And most of them were coming from abroad, you know, from, from uh, out of Syria. And then most of them were using Turkish territory to cross uh, the porous borders and then join, join ISIS. I think in those years, according to some reports, you can see there were more than 5,000 uh, militants from from Tunisia, another three thousand from Saudi Arabia, and another more than two thousand again from Turkey, because these organizations, ISIS and Al Qaeda, they are using more Islamist and jihadist you know ideology. But again, the problem here I should underline, they are using their own interpretation of Islam and Quran. But anyway, even their violent the violent interpretations. I think were very influential in those years to to invite and to attract some some militants from this these countries just to join ISIS. So uh, this thirty thousand, of course, I think in in the, from the US, I think there were more than four hundred American American passport maybe uh, ISIS militants. I think several thousand again in uh, in EU countries. In this context, I think we should give our focus on one interesting research which is saying that uh, these Islamic militants, they can get radicalized after they join these jihad organizations. So if we assume that these 30,000 militants, they got radicalized after they joined ISIS. So today, for example, I can tell you that there are more than 30,000 radicals, radicalized individuals. Now it's a big question for the Western world, these returnees, so where they are, also, what they are doing now. Maybe according to some reports, around 10,000 ISIS militants are staying in Iraq and Syria. Another 10,000 moved to Syria and then left Syria and moved to the, to the Sahel region. But for your question, I can say that, yes, yeah, the biggest portion of these uh, militants were coming from mostly the Islamic uh, countries. Because hmm. uh, I mentioned it uh, a minute ago, but I wrote an article about the uh, the Caucasian uh, province, and through researching that, I saw a lot of the fighters that were in the kind of Islamist groups in the Northern Caucasus. Most of them did just go to Syria and ended up dying in the civil war there. So it's interesting how you can kind of look anywhere and see similar stories. So you mentioned. Uh, Tunisia having quite a large number in Saudi Arabia. How have uh, Islamic countries dealt with returnees? Yeah. Because I've heard a lot about how the EU and how the US and the UK has dealt with it, but I've not really heard much from uh, uh, the Islamic world. I think this is is a big problem for the Islamic world because there's no research and data about these returnees. So we don't know uh, where these returnees are in the Islamic world, 
But I assume that some of them, again, are still in some other jihadist regions because in today's world, now it's been a trend, you know, in the last two decades to see the movement of this uh, jihadist from one uh, conflict zone to another conflict zone. So in today, I think there are some several conflict zones where these jihadists are uh, operating, like in Yemen or Sahel or, or again, Syria or Afghanistan. But of, uh, how this, how Islamic world has handled, you know, to these returnees, I don't know. I don't think that they professionally, you know, handled mm -hmm. these returnees because I just, I just mentioned about one interesting research. So now we can today talk about more than 30,000 radicalized individuals. So radicalization is it's a process. So to de-radicalize people, again, you need some processes, you know, you need some centers like the uh, rehabilitation centers. I don't think that Islamic world is giving its focus on these returnees, but then maybe it wouldn't be wrong to say that today these Islamic militants, they are just moving from one jihadist region to another one. The modern insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash modern insurgent. Thank you very much. So what are some of the longer implications of this rise of Islamist extremism in Syria? What do you think the next 10 years might look like for the Islamists? Islamists. Yeah. If you look at again uh, terrorism databases or some terrorism reports, maybe uh, also we have just talked about uh, ISIS's losing power in Syria. But on the other hand, expanding ISIS's influence as well as Al Qaeda's influence in some other regions. I think today there are some active Al Qaeda groups, and then HDS in Syria, Ayatollah Sham, which the organization is. Uh, doing attacks like around 100 attacks every year. So ISIS core, I have just mentioned about low profile attacks by ISIS core, but around three or 400 cases every year in Iraq and Syria, uh, ISIS is, is, is involved in. But other than Syria and Iraq, so Al-Qaeda has some other strong representations in the Sahel, like the JNM group, this is an Al-Qaeda franchise, and actively operating in, in the Sahel. Every year, JNM also is involved in more than uh, 200 terrorist attacks in, in the region. And also there is another one, Al-Qaeda franchise in Somalia, which is Al-Shabaab. So Al-Shabaab is, in the last decade, always one of the top 10 terrorist organizations with the most incidents, also with the most casualty. So today, for example, uh, there is, they, are not, they are not anymore active in Syria or Iraq. So they are not getting our focus because mostly they are involved in low-profile attacks. But when it comes to its impacts, also its, ex its expansion, so I can tell you that regionally and globally, these organizations organizations are today uh, are very active. Also, just by the way, there is another ISIS franchise in in Afghanistan, which is ISIS K ISIS Khorasan branch. Mm -hmm. So this organization uh, has been involved in terrorist attacks, again, more than 100 cases. Also, by the way, uh, these organizations, also they are the deadliest organizations because maybe ISIS-K and ISIS-West Africa branches the, and also ISIS-Mozambique branches, 
you can see these three organizations in the list of the most deadliest terrorist organizations. So mm. uh, globally, I can just tell you that they are not anymore or be very low, I think, level involvement. But now today, they are more active in other regions and Asia and Africa as well. Mm. Uh, we've done quite a, a lot of work looking into ISIS in West Africa and like Boko Haram and uh, some of the bits in Mali and Burkina Faso and some of the things that have happened to the people of like northern Nigeria for example are just mind-blowingly disgusting it's reading some of the first-hand accounts it's, it's the same in uh, Syria and Iraq really it's similar kinds of things happen and it's it's always hard to kind of actually understand how people can do that to one another I think that's why uh, we, we talked about you know Islamism and jihadism also we emphasized on how these jihadist groups are interpreting Quran and Islam you know so religious organizations in the world are the most uh, deadliest and the brutal organizations because their violence is based on their own interpretation of Islam so uh, I think yeah, it is the matter of education it is the measure of again sometimes living some vacuums in the Islamic world. Because uh, also, again, we know that some states, they are just opening religious schools and they are just aiming to, you know, spread and expand their own maybe ideologies or their own version of Islam. So wherever you can see the spread of Wahhabism and Salafism, so wherever you can see, you know, the intersections of this Wahhabist and the Salafist ideologies, and they're coming together with maybe uh, some other already uh, existed, you know, these jihadist organizations like in Africa. So we can see that they are being the most deadly organizations. So they behead, they behead people, they burn people alive. So, but the problem is uh, it is based on religion. So that's why the Islamic world needs to be, needs to be aware of again how these organizations are interpreting Islam, also how this violent version of Islam you know, is just spreading uh, in, in many regions of the world. Just let me tell you some example from Afghanistan. There are some religious schools in, in Afghanistan sponsored by some Gulf states, like their religious medicine. But when you look at uh, the version of Islam and then using uh, taught in in these religious schools, I think there are some very, very big problems, you know, because it mm. is just creating more and more radicals and believing maybe something different than maybe today's modern Islam. But the problem is they are radicalized individuals because they are under the influence of a, of a one long process. So that's why uh, when it comes to, again, counter-terrorism, we should be aware of, again, how this violent version of Islam is spreading and also how we can prevent maybe uh, its expansion. Mm. It's really interesting you mentioned the uh, Gulf-sponsored madrasas in Afghanistan. Uh, earlier this year I was in Pakistan and for about a month and some of the madrasas you see are very different to others. It's very interesting on the ground actually seeing it. Obviously you don't know for a fact but you know pretty well seeing one the vibe that goes with it i was in pakistan for some official visits uh, mm. so i remember some of briefings of the government people 
who are seeing that there are several hundreds of uh, madrasas, the religious schools in the borderland uh, areas of Pakistan and Afghanistan, but they are not under the control of any governmental system. Mm. So who is no. opening, who is, you know, and then giving training for these kids in in these borderland areas? Yeah. Especially because it's one of the poorest areas in the world, really, that kind of border region. And these villages where the children have no real education, no opportunities for work, it's, you can start to understand how people can be groomed into extremism at a young age in these areas because it it wouldn't be hard to lead someone in that direction when there's nothing else available that's why in the beginning uh, i mentioned about uh, this islamist you know approach which is political political islamist islamism so it is really common to see corruption you know in the islamic world especially whenever or wherever these political islamist parties are ruling the countries so you can see endemic corruption. Of course, for, an, for a corrupt government, it is never a priority, you know, to give focus, to give their focus on these uh, issues on terrorism and radicalization, as well as these returnees. So uh, has the rise of Islamist extremism in Syria had any spillover effects on neighboring countries? I mean, we've talked about beyond because we talked about all the separate ISIS spillover groups. But how has it really affected the borderlands? I think also uh, how it has imp impacted you know, the borders. Actually, now today we are talking more about trafficking and smuggling issues. Mm. And today, uh, Syria is like more, more a criminal hub. Since the priority is given to security and the jihadist terrorism in, uh, in Syria, so I think we all ignored about some of its consequences, like uh, flourishing networks uh, between criminals and also uh, traffickers and smugglers. I think very recently, Bashar al-Assad was invited to uh, Arab Arab League summit, I think in May in Jeddah. So it was like an indicator of uh, Assad's victory in this in this more than ten year. Uh, 10 years civil war. Now he, he got this invitation because the regional countries, they are more concerned about the capital trade. Now Syria is a production and it's, it's a source uh, country. So uh, like the Captagon, so there are some other drugs and human smuggling networks. They are all again in Syria and hugely impacting uh, the neighboring, uh, neighboring countries. In addition to that, I can also Talk about, for example, one ISIS model, because ISIS ISIS is seen as a model organization, because it is the only organization uh, who is able to control the territory and then rule uh, a country under its de facto state. So that's why today it's uh, we can talk about what this ISIS model is, as how other uh, groups in the regional countries and neighboring countries are copying this ISIS ISIS model. Also, another one I think here we should talk about maybe another ISIS legacy. And the, in the Western world today, it is more common to see self-radicalized individuals. So we have seen that rather than Al-Qaeda, ISIS's ideology is more inspirational than Al-Qaeda when it comes to radicalizing the individuals in, uh, in the Western world. 
And it kind of leads me perfectly onto the next question of how, as a civilization, can we combat groups like this and then self-radicalizing individuals? Yeah, I think uh, the more we have seen the changing trends in, in Syria, so we have seen, you know, uh, the changing counterterrorism approaches and strategies. So in the early years, it was a priority to overthrow Bashar al-Assad regime, but not anymore. So he got an official invitation, and then he joined this Arab League you know, summit in, in May. So I think we have, from now on, what we have to do is, in Syria and Iraq, I don't think that Al-Qaeda and uh, ISIS will be a big threat for the Western world. So we will see again, every year, several hundred cases uh, perpetrated by ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but seemingly they are more low-profile attacks. So that's why uh, now the Syrian regime is controlling more than 70% of the country. So in the in the future, we should see some co co cooperation between Bashar al-Assad regime and also some neighboring countries to fight against this ISIS and uh, uh, Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda groups. So what we need to do in the Western world, so I have just mentioned about self-radicalized individuals. So I think we need to look at what is radicalizing these individuals? So how ISIS and Al Qaeda, you know, also influence are spreading. I mean, ideologically, uh, to to the Western world. So we should really understand how these in, these individuals are are getting radicalized, and then uh, we should look at again how Islam is interpreted, and how we can prevent this violent interpretation of Islam, and it spread again to the Western world. Uh, in the uh, to the Western world, I think also we should look at very recently. It's a new trend: social media. So I think through social media, we have seen these maybe self-radicalized individuals. So we need to understand how it is happening. Also, we need to think. I think more in the context of uh, counterterrorism to be more preventive against this uh, radicalization. I think a, a great point you touched on there is the necessity for cooperation. I think, as you mentioned, the self-radicalizing individuals in Europe, there's also the opposite of people radicalizing themselves to be far right and carry out Islamophobic attacks. So I, th I think it is really key to educate, understand and cooperate. I think you've nailed it perfectly there. Yeah. And... Finally, um, whether you can tie it into Syria or not, I don't mind, but it's an interest that I noticed is a speciality of yours. Uh, the trafficking of weapons of mass destruction. I've heard lots of stories from the 70s, 80s, after the fall of the USSR. What does the world of weapons of mass destruction trafficking look like today? Yeah. I think the world so far has has experienced biological and chemical weapons attacks. Not not anymore. Not any nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. So today, uh, I believe some groups they are able to to access to these materials because there are still ongoing chemical, biological, and nuclear smuggling uh, in the world, which is an indicator of some ongoing, you know. Uh, the presence of or existence of these materials. And always we know that these jihadist groups or terrorist organizations are interested in getting access to, to these materials. 
So it is not a big threat in terms of seeing any terrorist organizations use of this double MD materials, but always we need to give our focus on uh, on this uh, issue. Uh, by the way, in Syria, I think uh, not only ISIS also, but Bashar al-Assad also regime used some some chemicals. I think uh, I know some several cases, uh, both by uh, Assad regime and also ISIS in in Syria. Mm. Uh, yeah, we went um, into detail of the I can't remember is it Al, Al Gaita, one of the one we went quite into detail in one of our episodes about the chemical attack carried out on Kurds by Assad, and it was one of the most confronting things I'd ever really heard in my life. It, mm just the effects on indiscriminate innocent people like the what it actually does to a human body is terrifying to hear the the i think the quote that will always stick with me is it's like drowning on land and it's just breathtaking my last uh, i think uh, my last word would be you know i don't feel sometimes secure in the world when i see these existing crazy regimes, crazy organizations, and crazy leaders, you know. So. Yeah. It's a crazy time we are living in, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's been a pleasure to have you on Insurgent City Unmasked. Amama. Thanks for having me, Joe. So thank you very much for coming on. And uh, if you'd like to find anything more about our organization, you can find us at modern insurgent on twitter tiktok and youtube and if anyone would like to uh, support us further and you can find us on patreon where you can find different tiers to subscribe to our organization further for more exclusive content and anything else interesting so thank you very much and have a good day everyone the Modern Insurgent is your impartial, independent and academic guide in deconstructing the world's conflicts and insurgencies through our unique documentaries, podcasts, reports and scholarly articles. Reporting on the underreported. reported